0: I was uh, at my home after a class and I saw it on live streaming uh uh media which is based in the United States, Tigray Media House. And I was shocked. I never imagined in my life to see such kind of uh killings with uh, with uh with uh with a pleasure on the other side. They were just pointing them, they were just killing them at a, at a a point blank range, you know, yeah. in the most brutal way, and they were throwing them out. It was the most, the most painful. Let alone for uh, my uh, home community, I. It's something that I never uh, want to be happen in any part of the world. It's it's the most cruel. It's the most demeaning. That time, it was uh, there was a, a limited communication with the because uh, the, the federal government was in control of the region and there was a very scarce uh, communication. And I tried to contact my friends and family out there. Yeah. They don't know, they know nothing. They know that they, uh, they are uh, youngsters who are kidnapped by the Ethiopian National Force soldiers, but they don't know whether they are dead or not.
1: Tell me how how did it feel to watch those videos thinking that some of the people in the videos you might know?
0: All right. You know, it's uh w- words just fails me to express my feeling actually. I was very angry. first I tried to uh to um to deny it's something that that's never happened. You know, I wish it was uh it was a propaganda or it was something uh something uh you know, something made up or uh Mistake. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I wish it was uh, It was a. Uh, it was not real, uh, real, uh, but starting It was reality, and the people, the victims, people were not allowed to to see the the whereabouts of their loved ones. They yeah. were not allowed to bury them.
1: Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Alifine, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. You've just heard from Biniam, an Ethiopian living in Canada, who was born and raised in the town of Mahberi Dego in Tigray, where Ethiopia's current civil war began at the end of 2020. The events he describes have become known as the Mahberi Dego massacre. Dozens of civilian men were rounded up and murdered by soldiers of the Ethiopian National Defense Forces, or at least by men dressed in the same uniform. They videoed the executions. One soldier caught on camera refers to the footage as a souvenir. The soldiers stayed in the town, but did not tell the town's residents what they had done. Confirmation of the men's fate only came months later and in the worst possible way. The murdered men's bodies had been left to wild animals, and it was only when vultures, dogs, and hyenas were spotted around the outskirts of the town carrying human remains that the residents realized the truth about their families. Only when the soldiers eventually left were the people of Mahberidego finally able to start the grisly task of identifying the dead. Among them were three men who Biniam describes as being like brothers to him. One was
0: a university graduate. His name is Melis. I know uh, his father was a priest and he used to visit our home. He was like, uh, his father was like a father to us. And uh, uh, that guy was very, very humble and nice guy. He was uh, doing good at school. He recently graduated. And uh, the other two was also, the other one was, uh, uh, killed with his brother uh, with um, um, he was a public health uh, graduate he was very senior and his brother was uh a, a, a very scholar in religion their father was a priest but he uh, his young brother was very uh, he he had a big milestone in the religion and the third one was uh Halophon. He was the youngest, I guess, from them. He might be fourteen or fifteen, and he was also very close with me. When I was in Mahabradegua, I am born and raised in Mahabradegua, yeah. and uh, he was uh, working uh, at a private, as far as I know. I know, and he was in school, <coughs> but most of them I know, and. Uh, I learned that, like, uh, four more of them are also very, uh, very close to me. So they became seven now. It was a crime against humanity for uh, killing people who have no, any contact with whatsoever military group or anything. You know, they uh, dragged them from their own house. But for that reason, uh, my brother was one of the, uh, my own brother, little brother, was one of the, uh, the the young people that was uh, chased after them in the town they was chased the young boys and the men in the town and my brother fled to uh the air uh, to the direction of the church in the town which is uh north, to the north of uh northwest area and he uh th- he told me that there was soldiers following them and shooting on the uh after them on the air like to intimidate them and they will stay and they will be caught by them. Hmm. Fortunately, he just uh, escaped. That's why he became, he was not, uh, he was not uh, part of the the victims. Otherwise it would be another story. You know, he, uh, he was lucky. He escaped. If he were waited, it would be one of those uh, victims.
1: What do you think should happen to the people who did this?
0: I I am still demanding a justice, and the perpetrators has to come to. Uh, they they should face a justice instead of uh, emboldening them or putting uh, both sides in statement. They should be accountable for their crime. the so the The most cruel part of the the massacre was first they uh They were. Uh, Filming it in purpose, uh, so that it can be uh, a purpose to terrorize the people, not to have any link with the uh, TPLF or the Tigray forces, and then they were, they were like inviting everyone of the uh, the uh, the brigades member to participate in the killing, even the the women soldiers. They were uh, they were encouraging them to. Uh, to uh to participate in the killing so and after after the massacre they throw the body down the cliff and also uh, one of my friends told me that after even uh, they killed them they try extra mile to to cover any any footage or any uh, any evidence by behaving them. After they kill them, they uh, they cut their heads off and they collect all the skulls in one uh, area and the other bodies in the and the other. So, the uh, they uh, they destroy a house of a farmer from arounding and they took the wound from that house and they burned the the corpse together so that they there could not be any any way uh, to uh, to trace the number of. Victims. So, it's the most uh, cruel thing, you know. It's a. Uh, I sometimes word fails me to uh, to uh, express the hate and the uh, the the cruelty. It's a. Uh, they went firm They went firm So.
1: I mean, I've seen some of the videos, and as you say, the cruelty is astonishing because it's not. It doesn't seem like it is something that is done purely for military purposes there's a there's a joy in some of the language that the soldiers seem to use there's a desire to hurt and it's done in such a casual way i think it sounds like you think it might be a while before there is any justice because of the way the the massacres were carried out and covered up
0: right right and uh it's very very uh very hard. The, uh, especially the government, the Ethiopian government, is uh, who had uh, the upper hand. Is uh, trying to to cover every crimes, even though they uh, they uh, they suggest that they will uh, they will they will hold account on some of the soldiers that uh, commit crime uh, all over the Tigray. But it seems it seems not near. As far as the uh, Ethiopian government is. Uh, uh, blocked Tigray from access of any uh, investigations even now with the uh, with uh with the total blockade with there is no communication from uh, and uh, to Tigray there are a lot of investigations in Mahabharadigo massacre starting from uh, uh, CNN BBC uh, uh and now new lines so even though the crimes are uh that are big, that can be mounted to the uh, crime against humanity, but the justice doesn't seem very near.
1: Binyam is just one of millions of Ethiopians affected by the ongoing civil war between the central government of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which is usually known as the TPLF. The TPLF have dominated politics in Ethiopia since 1991 when a TPLF-led coalition of regional rebel groups took power and established a federal system of ethnic homelands, having overthrown the old communist regime. This arrangement persisted until 2019 when Abiy Ahmed was elected as the coalition's leader. In a bid to counter Tigrayan dominance of the government, Abiy reformed the coalition's ethnically divided parties into a single centralized prosperity party. The TPLF vehemently refused to participate and, after the pandemic prompted delays to the 2020 regional elections, held elections anyway in open defiance of the federal government. The subsequent showdown quickly escalated into what one Ethiopian general described as a very dirty war. Since it began, millions have been displaced. The Mahabere Dego massacre is just one of a series of mass killings committed by both sides. Sexual violence has been widespread and the government stands accused of using starvation as a weapon of war. In November, Abiy's government declared a state of emergency in the face of Tigrayan advances on the capital. Last week, with the Tigrayan defense forces on retreat, Abiy announced it would be lifted ahead of schedule. UN officials have called it an opportunity for peace, but many Tigrayans feel it may instead end in genocide. I was put in touch with Biniam by Zacharias Delalem, a freelance journalist from Ethiopia who reported on the Mahberi Dego massacre for New Lines and who has covered the Tigray War since its inception. Zacharias says that the massacre is just one of many that UN investigators have so far downplayed or ignored in their reports.
2: The massacre of Mahberi Dego uh, was one of uh, several, uh, which investigators from the UN, as well as their partners in the Ethiopian government run um, Ethiopian Human Rights Commission, had promised to probe um, throughout their six or seven months of uh, investigating in Tigray. Um, prior to the to their probe being released, Ethiopia's embassy in the UK had reacted by stating that journalists should not rush to conclusions and that the probe would address uh, what is seen in the video. And I believe the ambassador even uh, is on record as saying that they condemned the, the violence. Mm. Um, sort of in, in an ambiguous way, as if to suggest that the perpetrators might not be Ethiopian soldiers. Right. Unfortunately, the UN report, uh, which came out in uh, November of last year, did not make any citation of one of the most well-documented atrocities, which, uh, which is a joke in itself, and it's, uh, it's uh, the primary reason why it's, the, it's on the receiving end of uh, so much criticism from uh, Tigrayans and um, international observers alike.
1: When did you first hear reports of the massacre at Mahberi Dego?
2: So like um, the majority of uh, Ethiopian social media users, well, Ethiopians uh, as a whole really, um, the first I heard of it was when uh, images, when those horrendous gruesome uh, video clips first surfaced um, on Twitter, on Telegram and on Facebook. So this would be early March 2021 approximately. Yeah about 2 months after the massacre actually took place
1: and then you went through the process of trying to verify what happened i mean the images that you're talking about they're in some ways they're very clear but in some ways they're sort of grainy it's not entirely clear what's happening there's an extended uh, there's extended video evidence of some sort of massacre taking place but it's not entirely obvious who the people are in the, uh, in the video, and to some degree the Ethiopian army has used this as a way to say that they were not involved in it.
2: Uh, yes, um, when the images first surfaced, um, I guess I could say it, it led to a race of sorts between different uh, news outlets to work to authenticate the images and to correctly interpret uh, what was going on, what was depicted so i was among the many journalists who worked with um with the uh with the specialists and i managed to geolocate um, the images thanks um, in no small part to residents of maradego who were able to um, provide me very helpful tips um, especially with the the mountain terrain that you can see in the, uh, in the video. Yeah. Um, I managed to, I actually managed to identify the, uh, the locations even prior to, uh, much of the reporting that was later published a month later by the likes of Bellingcat. Um, I did not immediately come up with my findings because, um, I was of the belief that any story would have to include the voices of victims, the voices of residents and eyewitnesses and as any journalist would tell you, it's, it was almost impossible um, to be able to get people integrai on record during those initial months of the war where telecommunications were down, journalists and aid workers were barred from the region. Mm. Uh, hence the, the delay in my um, publishing the, any body of work on the story.
1: They were frightened. Of course, they were frightened for their own lives. I mean, they thought the army might come back.
2: Definitely, definitely. Uh, when the images surfaced, the Ethiopian army was still in control of the entire town and its surroundings. And it was really after after June, after June, July of 2020, when the Tigrayan forces were able to recapture much of Tigray, including the town of Mabaradego, that we had a chance to really be able to connect um, with, with residents of Mabaradego um, without fearing any reprisals. Um, but the challenge, of course, that came with that was that after the Tigrayan forces took over Mahabharadégo, the Ethiopian government cut off all remaining phone lines—the very limited phone lines—to the region, mm. uh, making it very difficult to connect with people who were still in Tigray. Um, but we were—we did—we were able to accumulate enough interviews during the two-three months, despite the challenges, despite the fears, and of course, it is the primary reason why uh, we've used pseudonyms throughout our reporting for. New Lines magazine.
1: And of course, we still haven't reached the stage where the Ethiopian army has accepted responsibility. They are still saying things like, they've used what is essentially the fake news defense, saying the uniforms were stolen and the soldiers were actors, and this kind of talk.
2: Yes, uh, an Ethiopian military official, military spokesman, Major General Mohammed Tasama, is on record as saying that the whole thing was faked and that they were actors um, who... Played out what was seen in the video. Mm. I mean, this is uh, rubbing salt in the wounds of uh, the countless family members who can recognize their loved ones in the in those video clips.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is something you say in the article, which I think is very powerful. That there are people who who can actually see the videos of their of their sons and their fathers being murdered.
2: Definitely. Um, I mean, they made it very clear that it it made the the healing process very difficult because. The massacre in Mahabharadigo was one of a slew of of atrocities that took place over the course of the first uh, six, seven months uh, of 2021. Um, Similar massacres were reported all across the the Tigray region. Uh, There was ethnic cleansing in Western Tigray, um, ethnic cleansing in Northern Tigray, near the Northern Central Tigray, near this Eritrean border. Um, The the massacre per se was not an outlier. I guess what makes a difference. it's just the fact that it was documented and archived uh, by video. Um, but of course, unlike the victims of other massacres, this was widely shared on social media and you know, the images of the brutal executions uh, will be impossible to scrub from the Internet. So, yeah, it makes it's a mix for a very horrid uh, healing process uh, mm. for scores of families
1: and this is the criticism that you make in the the essay that the un has has been selective in the way that they have reported um the various massacres not the one at mahamarego what do you think is missing from the picture that these um investigations have painted
2: well it goes without saying that um uh, the uh, the joint investigative team uh, was obviously not entirely independent um you do have A state-sanctioned human rights watchdog um, involved with the with the investigative process uh, which 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 is an entity that ethnic tigrayans who bore the bulk of the the casualties um, do not trust or the most ethnic tigrayans are unanimous in their belief that the state the ethiopian state uh, entity is out there to whitewash the various atrocities the various crimes and in essence, it is what happened. Um, a number of atrocities were completely ignored, while others were whitewashed or downplayed. Um, I believe there was another massacre in the town of Bora, uh, which um, which journalists had uh, had uh, reported had left up to one hundred and seventy or one hundred and eighty dead. And mm-hmm. I think the UN probe um, acknowledged that an atrocity took place and put the death toll as low as sixty or seventy. So once again, it's uh, it definitely um it definitely highlights uh, the, the lack of uh, impartiality with the joint uh, investigative team.
1: I wanted to ask you about the ethnic dimension to the conflict. Um it's become something of a cliche for Western media you know reporting on the Middle East and Africa to attribute the bloodshed to sort of ancient hatreds or start talking about some sort of tribal war. and it it makes it difficult to talk about these things in a way that captures the reality and the nuances of the situation. The in, in Ethiopia, I mean prior to this this war, ethnicity and politics have always been quite linked under this system of ethnic federalism. Um but you were making the point that actually ethnic federalism is very recent, but the conflicts between ethnicities is much older.
2: Uh yes. I mean um well The first thing is that um, the ethnic, the the various ethnicities um, that are impacted, the various ethnic groups impacted by the ongoing civil war are peoples who have coexisted in harmony for decades, if not centuries, Uh, in particular, the Tigray and Amhara regions, especially along the border where some of the, the the common regional border where some of the worst atrocities and ethnic cleansing have taken place, um, the communities there intermingled and it was very common to hear both languages being both the Amharic and Tigrinya languages of the two peoples being spoken concurrently by the by the natives of the area Um, unfortunately partisan politics um, worsening tensions between the political leaders and the widening political divide resulted in the social fabric of these peoples uh, being torn completely shredded over the course of the past uh, year and a half uh, most observers are of the are of the belief that things did not have to descend and uh, in, into what they became this quickly, this rapidly. Um, ethnic ethnic federalism has been has something of a necessary compromise in Ethiopia, uh, which has a, a history of uh, uh, of um, power struggles between variety of um, of uh, leaders. Even warlords of uh, various ethnic um, ethnic backings. So th- the history and the the history Ethiopia's history does point to ethnic divisions um, being at the forefront of much of the power struggles, but it did not really dent the the um, the, the ability of the peoples to coexist. Um, however what we've that... seen in the past year and a half uh, may have uh, may have uh, sadly um, put a nail on the coffin maybe tragically yeah.
1: do you think then that ethnic federalism was something of a compromise that just had to be accepted
2: at this point in time it was it was um, especially i mean when it was enacted in 1996 it might have they might have extended uh, given a, a new lease on life to ethiopia as a country um, because it came at a time where uh, numerous, um, numerous armed entities had risen uh, demanding things like uh, the respect of uh, cultural and language rights, self-autonomy, things that had been um, denied over the course of um, a century's worth of uh, rule under uh, successive central governments. So uh, be- um, ushering in a new government that was resigned to maintaining uh, the previous system in which Ethiopia's various ethnic groups um, did not have their their languages and their cultures acknowledged or recognized by the constitution. Um, that likely would have uh, resulted in a in a resumption of the the civil war that ended in 1991. So yes, it was a necessary compromise. Of course, the the government that did. Um, that did finally enshrine the constitution ended up being an authoritarian regime that ruled the country with an iron fist for much of the the succeeding 27 years. Um, however, it, it's something that the, the, the ethnic federalism uh, aspect of the constitution is really something that just needs uh, proper enacting. It's not something that needs um, a removal. Um, but of course, this is something that we would have been speaking of a year or two prior to the civil war
1: at this point yeah, because now you, you know, yeah because now you feel that the that the conflict means that ethnic federalism isn't going to be accepted going forward
2: well it's more like the 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 compromises and the compromises might might uh, might need to be greater this time around um you have uh, more and more voices uh, calling for outright independence amongst certain entities um, there's a significant section of the Tigray population now that will not accept uh, coexistence under uh, under a sole Ethiopian entity. Um, voices that, The voices calling for independence that used to be a fringe element of Tigray society are now uh, becoming more and more mainstream, um, due in no small part to the horrendous massacres um, meted out against the population by Ethiopian soldiers, allied militias, and soldiers from neighboring Eritrea. Yeah,
1: I mean, Eritrea is part of the, the story, isn't it? Because it's something that, something that isn't often discussed in the coverage, which, as you say, is portrayed as a as an internal civil war. But the regime in Eritrea is collaborating very closely. When Abiy Ahmed took the army in, they went in explicitly with Eritreans.
2: It goes without saying. Um, the Tigrayans and the the Tigray region governing Tigray People's Liberation Front, or the TPLF. The TPLF entity and the ruling party, or the, the regime in Eritrea, have um, have no love, lost between each other. They've been feuding for decades, ruling, uh, dating back to their fallout, which triggered the 1998-2000 Ethiopian-Eritrean War, which left something like 80,000 people dead. So the Eritrean government essentially blames um, the TPLF and Tigrayans mm. for their defeat in that war, as well as the decades of economic isolation, diplomatic isolation that they suffered until Abiy Ahmed uh, put pen to paper on the infamous peace treaty of 2018 that uh, restored ties between Ethiopia and Eritrea. Mm. But it's, it's quite clear right now that and despite that peace treaty um eritrea and its president for 30 some 13 years now isaiah saforki still had an axe to grind with the tplf and with the tigrayan leadership and it is partially why the eritrean military has been so embedded in ethiopian military operations and have been so involved in the civil war and even the even the the problematic uh, UN joint uh, investigative report identified Eritrean soldiers as perpetrators of some of the worst atrocities um, in the ongoing civil war.
1: And what is your analysis then of whether the TPLF will seek uh, independence?
2: Uh, well, that's obviously a, that's obviously an issue that would require um, an end to the war. Would require because this war has become a quagmire an unending quagmire it's not something that will be solved militarily that's what uh, any observer of this of the past uh, fifteen months worth of bloodshed would tell you um, once there's a mediated settlement uh, third party mediators can obviously uh, bring the, the the various factions uh, to an agreement on what the future would look like. Um, obviously the tigrayans will not compromise whatsoever on their hard-fought autonomy, um, whether that would mean a federated existence under a single Ethiopian entity, or whether Tigray might uh, spend the next, uh, the near future uh, living as an independent but unrecognized entity a la Somaliland. Um, that, that's it's hard to say, it's, uh, I'd be speculating right now. But obviously, the first step would be for mediators to get involved, and they are to some extent. There's some very preliminary level movement, um, which which has involved the release of various political prisoners, the release of detained TPLF leaders, Um, but nothing yet that has really borne the sort of fruit which could spell an end to the conflict, which sadly continues to rage on.
1: It's quite a critical moment now in the conflict, isn't it? You have Tigrayan forces moving back to Tigray. Um, there was a discussion a couple of weeks ago that the the state of the emergency would come to an end. And so it feels like there may be an opportunity for a negotiated peace. But what you're saying, it sounds like neither side is going to accept anything close to the status quo that prevailed before because they might feel that the past year was then wasted.
2: Definitely. Um, on, the side of, um, on, the si- on the side of the Ethiopian government, for the first year or so of the war, the question of negotiations were, was out of the question. Um, the TPLF has been designated a, a terrorist organization uh, by Ethiopian parliament. And j- just arriving to the point and making the concession that roundtable talks Are necessary uh was a massive shift from a a massive policy policy change uh, from the stance maintained over the course of the past uh, year um when like at the height of the fighting Ethiopian government continued to maintain that it was conducting mop-up operations of a finished force and that negotiations were no longer necessary um i think it could be perhaps upon Upon Tigrayan forces coming within two hundred kilometers of the capital city, that a question of uh, negotiations became an inevitable reality in Addis Ababa. Um, nevertheless, publicly, um, the saber rattling continues on both sides, and we had recently we had an Ethiopian uh, military commander go out on state television and promised viewers that Ethiopian forces would go back into Tigray and retake the capital city. So, as I said, with that sort of saber rattling, you don't see the sort of compromising approach uh, that both sides need to be able to, to reach an agreement, um, to reach the sort of settlement that would address the very, very dire humanitarian uh, situation on the ground, which is arguably, arguably the worst in the world today so you still have half a million people in need of food aid um half a million people that are exposed to famine and due to fighting due to uh, an ethiopian military enacted blockade um aid agencies have not been able to deliver um the necessary i think the, the statistic was something like 150 trucks uh daily deliveries of food aid to the region so Yes, we are far from, uh, despite the, the somewhat promising signs, um, publicly, both sides still appear to be on, on a war footing and on the ground as well, especially on the Afar front, fighting has intensified in, in recent days. So um, some of that optimism has has uh, given away, given way for pessimism in recent weeks.
1: I wanted to ask a little bit about your own, um, the impact that the conflict has had on you. When we were talking before about, you know, how difficult it was and you felt that you needed to leave for a period of time. um, But also that, you know, other journalists have been, Ethiopian journalists have been arrested. Other journalists have been expelled. It's a very, very difficult conflict to report on. I wondered if you felt that there were times when you'd had concerns for your own safety or if you feel that it might be difficult one day to go back
2: well, um, obviously, uh, over the course of the past uh, six months or so, the, the very narrow space that had been uh, available for journalists to operate in has nearly dissipated. Ethiopia has once again returned to its former status as one, as, uh, one of the top jailers of journalists in the world. Um, so, so many of our colleagues have quit their work. Uh, others have been detained. I think something like 40 journalists uh, had been detained over the course of 2021. Um, and the, the few others who are still, st- still operating in Ethiopia are have either watered down their work or are working without bylines. Um, it has been impossible um, to operate freely under the extremely repressive uh, atmosphere. Um, personally, uh, as someone in exile, I'm not someone who's um, that concerned about my safety. Um, I do have colleagues, um, friends, including uh, fellow journalist Lucy Casa, who who was assaulted by plainclothes uh, security officers uh, in Addis Ababa when she began investigating uh, the weaponized rape and the systemic uh, gender-based uh, violence um, by Eritrean soldiers. Um, so obviously, I'd have to pay tribute to the journalists who carried out their work on the ground. Uh, who face the real risks, the very real risks of arrest, of uh, of uh, suffering bodily harm, and those of us uh, on the outside, I mean, obviously we come on the receiving end of uh, daily death threats, um, online abuse, slander. Um, it's 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 part of the job. Uh, you know, we we grow accustomed to it. It's not the most pleasant thing in the world, um, but I obviously um, have to acknowledge that my my privileged position as someone who's out of the reach of uh, much of the much of the entities that clamp down on journalists, um, um, as some also as someone who does not hail from any of the the warring regions, um, I don't have the same um, I don't have to I don't deal with the same lef- levels of trauma. as Some of my fellow colleagues who've spent six or seven months unable to communicate with their families on the ground um un, unaware of whether they are their families are eating or are caught up in in air strikes or in crossfire i don't have that i don't have those fears obviously when the war um when there was a credible threat of the war encroaching on Addis ababa where the capital city where all of my family and friends live on of course that's when my own fears heightened because uh, we're talking about warring factions all of which have, all of whom have very poor track records when it comes to um, um, human rights. So, my fears have obviously um, have obviously subsided since the, the rebels have been pushed away from the capital city. Uh, as I said, I think I have it better than better off than uh, many of my colleagues.
1: That was Zacharias the Lalan. The crackdown against journalists that Zacharias describes has made it challenging to find reliable information on the conflict, which is, of course, the government's intention. Since the civil war started, according to Reporters Without Borders, dozens of journalists have been arrested. While it is Ethiopian journalists who have suffered the worst from the crackdown, even international media has been affected by the government's efforts to suppress independent reporting. At New Lines, we saw the chilling effect of the government's policy for ourselves in the process of preparing this episode, when some of the potential guests we reached out to elected not to speak to us, citing uncertainty about the consequences. Julia Steers, our next guest, is one of the few reporters from an international media outlet to be allowed to cover the war from the ground. She's a correspondent for Vice News and chief of the company's bureau in Kenya. She reported from Ethiopia in September of last year. I spoke to her from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, and began by asking her about how she managed to get into Ethiopia, given the government's hostility to reporters. The process, she says, was far from easy.
3: Yes, we tried to get into Ethiopia for, you know, since the outbreak of the war in November of last year, and we did this. A variety of ways, both lobbying the federal government directly and then obviously working with the Tigrayan leadership to see if there were any ways in on that side, up to and including going to the border of Sudan and Tigray to see if there were any opportunities to go that way. Ultimately, we were rejected three times for visas via the federal government. But in August of last year, while I was actually reporting on the border of Sudan and Ethiopia, I received a call from the prime minister's office who, after months of sort of directly lobbying the spokesperson of the prime minister's office, they allowed us to come and specifically to go report in the Amhara region.
1: And do you have a sense of why at that point they were keen to get international media in?
3: I think at that point there was enough negative coverage that it was starting to affect them despite the fact that every time there was a negative report out of Tigray, they immediately sort of hit back with accusations of fake news and rejecting the validity of the reporting. I do think there was, it was a turning point in several ways, one in their recognition that it was getting quite bad in the international spotlight Mm. for the federal government. And then also it was just before the renewal of Abiy's term, the swearing in of a new government, and around the same time that they were lobbying for mass mobilization for people to fight back against the TPLF presence, both in the Amfar and the Amhara region. So it was a turning point in several ways, and I think they felt they had something to say. The narrative was obviously very specifically inviting us to the Amhara region to show us the damage that TPLF forces had wrought in that region. And that was very explicit when they invited us to come. And then of course, when we were reporting on the ground, we had minders and we had, you know, frequent reminders from the communications ministry that the reason we were there was to report on the toll of what they said was TPLF destruction um, against Amhara civilians.
1: Yeah, they have tried very hard to control the narrative from the very beginning.
3: Yeah, and to to a large extent, they've been quite successful. I mean, the media blackout and the you know all out blockade of Tigray has been unfortunately quite successful in both limiting the reporting and by virtue of that controlling the narrative. Um, and then, of course, you know through social media and through their own sort of press strategy, they've tried to control the narrative very tightly. And we felt that on the ground, and we agreed to report there knowing that what we were seeing was through a very particular lens, but also knowing that reporting opportunities had been so limited that, you know, it would be foolish, obviously, not to take up an offer to report on the ground.
1: Yeah. You did report from a Tigrayan refugee camp near the Ethiopian border. Um, I wonder if you have a sense of how Tigrayans were seeing the conflict there. Was there a lot of support for the TPLF or... You know, did people just really want it to be over so they could go home?
3: So one of the actually the answer to that is sort of both. And one of the most interesting parts of my reporting over the last year was actually seeing the shift in my two reporting trips to the camps in eastern Sudan, right on the border with Tigray. I went about a month after the outbreak of the war, and then I went again about 10 months later in August. And right right after the outbreak of the war, The sentiment was very much, all we want to do is go back to our home, go back to our lives. Um, You know, this war caught us by surprise, and we just want to go back. And we've been living, you know, as a united Ethiopia, we've been living next to the Amhara people for decades, and we just want to go back to that. I really cannot overemphasize the shift in tone in the 10 months that followed as they received more and more news about what was going on at home. When we reported from there in August of this year, the shift was really, you know, towards much, much greater support of the TPLF, much more sort of hardened viewpoints, a lot of talk about revenge, a lot of talk about their children taking revenge on the regime of Abiy Ahmed and against the federal government. So you certainly saw in the camps a real hardening uh, in terms of sentiment against the federal government and a huge support for the TPLF. There were many, many reports, some of which we were able to confirm ourselves of young men leaving the camps to join the fight, to cross back over into Tigray and join the fight. So certainly there was big support and also a real sense of sort of intractability. There was a sense among a lot of the refugees that, you know, actually they might not be able to go home soon and that the war had gotten much worse than they expected it would.
1: That's fascinating. And it suggests that the very brutal response from the government actually backfired over that period, that it became so entrenched that you are talking almost about people preparing for generational conflict.
3: Absolutely. I mean, that made it into some of our reporting. There was a mother who had two sons. And I said, you know, what do you hope for the future of your sons? And frankly, I expected her to say to live in a peaceful Ethiopia. And she said, quite the opposite you know she she wanted her sons to go back to grow up and go back and to fight and to avenge the death of their father who was killed by federal forces and you know we heard that that was a story we heard many times over
1: i wonder if part of the reason for that is that so much of the conflict seems to have been carried out against civilians you visited the site of a a massacre in the village of chenna um where the government says tigrayan forces murdered around 200 civilians now there have been civilian deaths on both sides but those incidents have not been unusual the violence against civilians has been very intense
3: Yeah, exactly. It's been very intense and and it's been very visceral, you know, especially given the mobilization of civilians by the federal government. It's not just the military that was targeting civilians in Tigray, for example, but it was Amhara militias and and young men who joined informal militias. So really, in a sense, it was sort of neighbor to neighbor, civilian to civilian violence, as well as, as you know, from the reporting, really gruesome violence, you know, sexual violence against women and house to house raids. So yeah, I think the, the government's narrative that they were targeting the TPLF leadership and TPLF forces, despite the lack of reporting, I think that narrative was disproven quite early on in the war, and it became clear that this was being waged um, on civilians.
1: When I interviewed um, Zacharias Dalalim, he said something very similar. He said that actually, despite there being a period when these two regions were living peacefully, he didn't think that was likely to be the case going forward. He thought Tigray might even push for independence or separation. Is that something that, that you feel, having been on the ground?
3: Absolutely. I think that was one of the most dispiriting parts of our reporting on both sides, to be honest, both in the camps amongst the Tigrayan refugees. And then in Amhara, we were there shortly after the federal government's call for mass civilian mobilization. So everybody pick up whatever weapon you have and join the fight. And of course, the federal government claimed it was the fight against TPLF leadership, but there was a lot of sort of coded language that really made it feel like the fight was against Tigrayan sort of writ large. And it's really hard to see, even if these sort of higher level peace talks are successful, it's very hard to see how you sort of put that genie back in the bottle. The Mm. sense of sort of frenzied support for the war effort, the increasingly sort of ethnicized use of language by local politicians, by civilians who we spoke to in Amhara, the, you know, being on the ground in Amhara at that time, you really got the feeling that everybody was behind the war effort. And the idea that a peace deal could be signed and Amhara civilians and Tigrayan civilians will sort of easily go back to living as neighbors and living as fellow Ethiopians is, is at this point quite hard to imagine.
1: It's very worrying. I mean, you hear mixed messages, I think, coming out of the Abiy government. On the one hand, you know, there's this push for a negotiated settlement, the TPLF, of course, the UN wants peace talks and so on. And Abiy's government said, you know, it's going to end the state of emergency. But on the other hand, you have people like the deputy army chief saying people of Ethiopia shouldn't think it's over. The enemy is still here. They have to be eliminated. There's no negotiations. These mixed messages mean realistically that regardless of what international pressure there is, this conflict is not going anywhere.
3: Yeah, exactly. And it's hard to tell, you know, whether or not Abiy is sort of saying one thing to an international audience. And then in terms of what he's saying to the local politicians who are saying these things or the local politicians who are continuing to wage war, it's hard to tell if that's coming from Abiy himself, or if frankly, he's just sort of lost control of all the forces at play. I mean, it's important to remember, it's not sort of a, a traditional war in that he can't just call back the federal forces there. You have Amhara militias, you have the mass mobilization of civilians, you have the involvement of regional militias in Afar and Amhara, you have Eritrean troops on the ground. So certainly, I think it's it's both mixed messages and messages delivered to different audiences, internal audiences versus international audiences. Mm-hmm. But also, frankly, I'm not sure that the prime minister has control over all of those forces that he sort of recruited and unleashed to help his war agenda.
1: Hmm. I wanted to ask you a bit about the propaganda aspect. We talked about how the, me- the government was trying to control the narrative. But I thought there was also something quite interesting about the way social media was involved. I mean, even social media beyond Ethiopia, spreading and normalizing some of the rhetoric against both sides. Did you feel when you were there that the way that it was perceived in the outside world was having an influence in stoking the violence?
3: Definitely. I think the framing of the international community as meddling, which was a narrative we saw a lot on social media, was something we saw on the ground. I mean, we came upon some random seeming rallies against the U.S., for example. And this was in in the week after Avi had been tweeting that the U.S. and many foreign powers should essentially stay out of Ethiopian affairs. So it was definitely mm-hmm. making it back even to small towns in the Amhara region, and then as you said, the diaspora has been quite active as well in social media messaging and and connecting some of those narratives back to what's happening on the ground, which of course, as a reporter makes it even more difficult because we've been so blocked from the country and then there's so much propaganda and so much sort of social media manipulation of what's going on on both sides uh, that it's difficult to parse through all of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, this relates to the point you were making earlier about the prime minister. In a way, he's painting himself into a corner because he's talking to two different groups at the same time, internally and externally. And it leads to a situation where it's hard to see him find a way out that will satisfy both audiences.
3: Certainly, I think this is the most engaged we've seen him with the international community for for a long time. He was not only ignoring the international community, but really snubbing many sort of big donors to Ethiopia and, and previous backers of Ethiopia, the US included. Uh, but now, as I said, you know, he he has backed himself in a corner to an extent because he's had to rally the support of politicians in Amhara, for example, to get behind the war effort, both, you know, in terms of throwing their money and their resources behind it. And so now if he's involved in sort of cutting this high level deal with international intervention, There are many parties, most likely the Amhara elite and the Eritrean president, who's been a huge ally of his, who will not necessarily be happy with that deal. So it's not a very comfortable position for Abiy, that's for sure.
1: On a personal level, um, I know you've spoken uh, with some warmth about Ethiopia. Do you think that if the war continues or if it stops and then restarts, do you think you might be able to go back and report?
3: We're hoping so. You know, we continue to engage with the federal government. We continue to engage with the TPLF side of things, sort of much to the chagrin of the federal government. Obviously, it's difficult on the Tigrayan side because the federal government has labeled them as terrorists. So as journalists, just talking to what they've designated a terrorist group is quite difficult. But I think, you know, the people of Ethiopia deserve clear-headed, objective reporting about a conflict that has been very muddled and very intense. And as we've discussed, wrought primarily against civilians. So hopefully, whether or not there is a peace agreement, we'll be able to get back on the ground soon.
1: Julia Steers there in Nairobi. What Julia said at the end really is the central question, whether or not there is a peace agreement. More than a year into the war, Ethiopia stands on the brink. By most accounts, the fighting is eased, for now at least but the humanitarian situation remains as urgent as ever. The United Nations warns that millions are at risk of starvation. Supplies of medicine are alarmingly low. Much of this depends on the Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, and whether he decides to try to negotiate or to push for victory in a bid to end his TPLF problem once and for all. It would be a dangerous gamble. Such a war would not be easy. But then neither will the peace, As our guests have pointed out, the forces he has unleashed to fight the war cannot easily be controlled or put away. A peace agreement would be a crucial and urgently needed first step. But the traumatic and violent polarization of Ethiopian society, which he has encouraged, will not be easily repaired without a serious and sustained effort towards reconciliation if Ethiopia truly is to end its very dirty war. Thank you very much to our guests. You can find Zacharias on Twitter at Zeku Zelalem and Julia at JC Steers. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faizan Yafai. You can subscribe to the New Lines Magazine podcast on your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can find more of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond, including Zacharias' article, the UN's purblind human rights reporting in Ethiopia on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.